Let me pray. Father, please would your word to us this evening be food that feeds our souls. Would your words free us to live for you. Please speak to us now. Please show us the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So the last few weeks we've been looking at the book of Micah. And uh, last week those who were here would have had the treat of, of David singing some John Lennon to you uh, back in chapter 4. So I'm sorry if you missed that, you've uh, missed your chance, uh, and I'm not going to sing for you this evening. But I do want you to imagine something else. So imagine with me, if you will, a country. Imagine a country with strong borders, stable government. Imagine a country with a relatively healthy economy, a country where most own their own home, many even a second. Life is so comfortable that the chief leisure activities are shopping and eating and drinking well. <clears throat> it's a country where God seems less important than in the past. Some have a bit of religion in their life. It's a comfort for them. But the radical zeal of past generations has been left behind. It's a country that's socially liberal, and yet there are social problems. The gap between rich and poor is growing larger. Cheap goods depend on trading with the poor and vulnerable. But most just turn a blind eye to that paradox, because for them, life is pretty good. It's a country who remembers great leaders in the past, and yet the leaders of today have big political problems in front of them. It's not a country so very different from Britain today, but the country I'm speaking about is Israel in the 8th century BC, and the book of Micah was written to them. But it isn't ancient history, it's very contemporary. But as we think back to that country, imagine with me another country. Imagine another country, a country with full employment and full home ownership, a country where trade is fair and the weak are defended, a country where uh, different races live together in harmony and no one is marginalised, a country where people love God and want to please him, where the leaders uphold the rule of law wisely with justice and mercy, a country where there's no suffering, no injustice, where no one turns a blind eye to evil because everyone fears and trusts God the judge. Well, we don't need to think for a moment to realise that that's not this country. It never will be. It's a foreign land to us at the moment. But the vision that Micah lays before us in chapter 4 is of that country. And he says that's what God's future plans are. And the point of the, the book is to get us there. But even as we have this tantalising vision laid in front of us, the question comes back, how are we going to get there? Do the problems run very deep? Now, hopefully I can uh, put it up on the screen. Maybe we could summarise the problems a bit like this. See, the country, um, they've got corrupt leaders. We saw them back in, in chapter 3. And the problem is that they've set the tone for the whole country. So Israel's just like them. They're, they're complicit. They're, um, they're idolatrous. They're defiled. They've got all kinds of problems that, that uh, cover the whole of society. And actually, the, the whole world 
Israel's like a microcosm of the whole world who are all accountable to, to God. But the vision that Micah sets in before us is that God is going to flip this upside down. He's going to turn the whole situation around. So what we get is this. We've got um, all nations gathered at the mountain of the Lord. That was last week. That's the turning point in the book. And those nations are gathering in Israel. So the, the remnant of Israel that's going to come back from exile in the future, they're going to be delivered, they're going to be transformed, they're going to be victorious. And the remnant and the world are going to be worshipping together at the mountain of the Lord. And yet the question remains, how does this happen? And the answer comes here in chapter 5. See, it all rests on a new leader. So what we get in Micah chapter 5 is a portrait of the leader we really need. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the portrait that Micah gives us, the vision of this leader. And he then follows it up with three pictures of what it's like to live with him as our leader. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to consider the two halves of the chapter in turn. First the leader, and then we'll have the three pictures of life with him. Which brings us on to our, our first point, the leader we need. Let's look back to um, chapter 5, and I'll read from verse 1. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. So we see here that God is speaking to his people at a time when they're threatened by an army. And it's possibly the Assyrian army with Sennacherib, that came and threatened them during the reign of Hezekiah. But the thing about sieges is that they take ages. The army is camped around for a really long time. So it's a promise that the nation is going to be threatened and they're going to be going through a really long dark tunnel and the light at the end is a very long way off. And this dark tunnel they're going to go through involves military defeat as well. So verse 1, there's this siege and um, they'll eventually be conquered. So uh, verse 1 continues. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. So the country is going to be defeated. And the leader uh, of the country, the ruler, is going to be um, hit with a rod. It's going to be like a slap in the face for the king. It's like the, the prime minister being made to kiss someone's boots. It's like humiliating defeat. It's like degrading. So yes, there's going to be a long, dark tunnel with defeat, humiliation. But there is light at the end of it all. So verse 2, we get this great promise from God. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. So your current ruler is going to be humiliated, but a new ruler is coming in the future. And he'll come from Bethlehem. What's the significance there? Well, Bethlehem is David's town. King David came from Bethlehem. But I think the emphasis here is on how small the place is. It's small among the clans of Judah, a trifling little place of no significance. But the insignificance of Bethlehem just serves to emphasize that this is God's doing. This is no human intervention. So though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. 
the arrival of this ruler is going to be a long time in the planning. It could be that it starts with King David or maybe even in eternity in the mind of God. The point is that this ruler coming is God's initiative. He's the one who sends the ruler. But no sooner is the ruler promised, then we're told the wait is going to be hard in verse 3. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labour gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Now, it could be that this woman in labour is uh, the mother of the ruler. But it seems to me more likely is that it's harking back to chapter 4, where a woman in labour was the picture given for the distress of Jerusalem. It's a picture of the distress that the nation is going to be in until the ruler is finally born. Now, according to my wife Louise, who is a midwife, some labours can be great, but there are some that are truly distressing that take a really long time. It's one of the things that I never thought I'd learn about until (laughs) I got married. So they're going to have this really long wait until the ruler appears. It's a bit like the the poor, beleaguered husband in those sort of stereotypes that I'm sure are not really true. He's sort of pacing the hospital corridors because everyone's abandoned him because they're all worried about what's happening to his, his wife who's giving birth. So he's waiting outside on his own. No one tells him what's going on. And um, it's a bit like that. The people of God are going to have to wait. It's going to be really distressing, and there's this extended labour going on. But one day, the dawn will come, and the, the ruler will be born. And, um, yeah, um, the, it'll be like a, a birth to celebrate when that happens. So who is this ruler then? Well, I'm sure we guessed it's Jesus, isn't it? But how do we actually know that? Well, I guess we're familiar with the Christmas story in, in Matthew's Gospel, we uh, get that scene where the wise men come and they are looking for where Jesus is. And so they go to Herod. Where, where's he born? The one who's going to be king of the Jews. And Herod together his, uh, his lackeys and asks them. And they say, well, um, it says in the prophet that he's going to be born in, in Bethlehem. And they read this bit here um, in verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will be ruler over Israel. So back then, they all knew that this was a prophecy that Jesus would be, sorry, that the ruler would be born in Bethlehem. And that's where they tell the wise men to go and search for Jesus. So that's why we get this passage read in Christmas carol services. But before we all start colouring in those Christmas card images with the, the donkey and the stable too much, The focus here, we should remember, isn't actually really on where he's going to be born. It's much more on what he's going to be like. So let's have a look at what Micah says this ruler is going to be like. So, verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. So I wonder if we spotted all the things that this ruler will do. So the first thing we're told is that he's going to stand. So standing has this picture of rising up, uh, assuming power. And he's going to shepherd his flock, which is a, a beautiful picture of the way that he's going to rule. He will guide his people. He'll, he'll care for his people. He will protect them, even feed them 
Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful picture of this shepherd who's also a majestic king. So it's a ruler who, who doesn't extort or coerce or dominate, but a, a glorious king who cares and looks after and guides. And this shepherd ruler will stand in the strength of the Lord's. He's empowered by God. He's given authority from God. And he's going to rule on behalf of God. And so, the people will live securely. There's actually a little contrast here that is quite easy to miss. The contrast is between the ruler at the start of uh, verse 4 and the people who live securely. Or or rather, um, the people who dwell or um, rest securely. Or literally, the people who sit. And the contrast is with the start of the verse. Heal stands. In other words, God's people can sit in security when their king stands and assumes power. When he stands and arises and sheds his flock and rules, we can sit down, we can rest secure. Because he stands, when he stands, his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Maybe we we feel like the people then that we're in this dark tunnel or in the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe, maybe that's not us at the moment, but maybe, maybe it is. But can we see that for all of us, this is the shepherd ruler we've always needed? Sermon series it, um, for Micah is um, Who is Like the Lord? And that's what Micah's name means. Who is like Yahweh? And there's really no one else like him. So this is the scenario of verses 1 to 5. We're surrounded on every side. We're under siege. We're struggling to cope with the waves of pain like a woman in labour. And into this, God sends his shepherds. So Jesus is the one who stands so that we can sit and rest. He's the one whose origins are old. And yet, he draws alongside us to rescue and to comfort He's the mighty shepherd who seeks us out when we're lost. He's strong when we're weak. He comes into our darkness and shines in the majesty of God. And he causes us to live securely. And don't we need that? Because there's enough insecurity going around, isn't there? And it's love for us that means we can live in peace. So here we have then the leader we need. Well, that's the leader we need. What we get in the rest of the chapter are three pictures of what will happen when this king rules. So it sort of unpacks the taster that we've already been given and the pictures kind of build on each other so that we get a fuller picture of what it's going to be like. So the three pictures that we get of life with the king, we get a picture of peace, a picture of triumph, and a picture of purity. So we'll consider each of those in turn. So firstly then, a picture of the peace. I'll read from um, verse 5 again, from the end of verse 5. And he will be their peace when the Assyrian invades our land and marches against our fortresses. Now Assyria here, I think, is a picture of the enemies of God's people. They were, of course, the actual enemies back then, but they're also representative of enemies in general. Because when this king comes, that's in the future. And he's going to come in the future and he's going to deal with these enemies in the present, which is kind of odd, right? Um, But I think what it's saying is that the the peace he's going to bring from these enemies 
it's like representative of the peace in general that, that God's people will enjoy. And that peace comes, verse 5, because we will raise up against them seven shepherds, even eight rulers of men. Well, what's going on there? Is it seven or eight? I'm a bit, bit confused. What's going on? Well, I don't think it's um, necessary for us to be confused. Basically, he's saying there's going to be more than enough leaders, right? There's, we could say there's, there's more leaders than you can shake a stick at. That's kind of the sort of thing that's going on here. Um, there's more than enough, and that means that we're going to be able to, verse 6, rule the land of Assyria with the swords, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. So Israel is going to be invaded, but they're going to beat the Assyrians back and even invade Assyria and Babylon. That's, that's the land of Nimrod. So when these enemies come against them, because they've got this king, they won't just kick them out, but they'll rule over them as well. It's a complete reversal. And the end result is there in verse 6. He will deliver us from the Assyrian. It's a picture of peace, peace from enemies. So that's the first picture, a picture of peace. Secondly, a picture of triumph. So verse 7, the remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples. So the remnant are the people of Israel who are left after the exile. So Israel are going to get booted out into exile, um, but there's going to be some people who come back. They're the survivors, they're the remnant. And the implication is that this remnant is going to be small and weak. They're going to be in the midst of many peoples, spread all over the place. Certainly not a force to be reckoned with. But verse 7 continues. The remnants will be like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which does not wait for man or linger for mankind. So how does this work? Let's think about dew for a second. When I step out of the house in the morning and go on the lawn, you basically, you can't step anywhere without getting your feet wet. If you go on the lawn and there's dew, then um, you can't help but get wet feet and notice it. You can't avoid it. So dew has the connotations of being everywhere and um, being noticed by everyone. But it's also something that we don't have control over. It just kind of appears in the morning. It's just sort of there when you get up. You don't really know where it's come from. So this Jew is saying that the remnant of God's people are going to be taken out of their insignificance and they're going to be recognised all over the world because of what God does in them. And verse 8 continues in that vein. So the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a, a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles wherever it goes and no one can rescue now, without doubt, the lion is the boss. I mean, no one beats a lion, right? I mean, we might all have our favourite animals. And um, I'm sure we've got lots of opinions about what's best, but there's no doubt the lion always triumphs. This isn't about being bloodthirsty or, or military victory. The point is about a transformation from being dominated and downtrodden and this little insignificant remnant, being transformed into victorious um, unstoppable um, world leaders. It's a picture of triumph. Verse 9, your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies. All your foes will be destroyed. The New Testament gives us the same picture of the church. For the Lord Jesus will reign and his people will reign with him. 
The church isn't going to be weak and feeble, or maybe we could put it differently. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And we can see this already today. Uh, God's people are spread all over the world and the church is growing in Asia, in South America, um, in Africa. The church is growing at a phenomenal rate. So we have a picture of peace, a picture of triumph. And thirdly, verses 10 to 15, a picture of purity. So verse 10, in that day declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. What we have here is a list of all the things that God's going to do away with. He's going to get rid of the horses and the chariots. Now, it's not something like he's got um, something against horses per se, but it's that uh, they represent the military hardware of the day. So it's the stuff that the people were trusting in to keep themselves safe. It's not only the, the horses and chariots, though, but it's also the cities and strongholds. Not bad things in themselves, but these were the things that the country was trusting in rather than God. And God said he was going to get rid of the army, get rid of the fortresses, and verse 12, get rid of the false religion as well. This um, witchcraft and these spells that they're casting, this occult religion, he's going to get rid of it. They're man-made gods, they're Asherah poles that represent the religion of the people who lived around them. God was going to destroy all of it. See, none of these things could save the nation. None of them had any lasting power. And when this king reigns, these things will be shown up for what they are, and no one will trust in them anymore. So, verse 15, that means judgment, not only on the things themselves, but also on the people who trust in those things, rather than the king. So God is going to purify his people. He's going to take away the things that they trust in, rather than him. So here we are then, three pictures of what life is like with this king. We've got a picture of peace, a picture of triumph, and a picture of purity. Well, let's try and draw all this together then, and we'll look at some applications of this. So I've got three applications for us. And the first one's this. Is this vision that Micah gives us, is that our vision? What do I mean by that? Well, do we believe that this is ultimately a picture of Jesus, of his church, and of us? And I guess in, in one sense, if we call ourselves Christian, then I guess we might answer yes to that. We probably answer yes. We may as well, um, we may well believe that Jesus is growing his church, that one day he's going to gather all his people together and make them perfectly pure forever. And of course, we, we want to get this right. We want to get the balance right. Um, here, the pictures come in physical terms. So there's military stuff, there's lions and all. And the New Testament often seems to apply this kind of um, physical promise to unseen spiritual realities. But I wonder if we've got a slightly different danger here that maybe stops us from fully believing this vision. I wonder if our tendency is to settle for too little and not to stand fully on the promises that God has given us here. Do our expectations match this vision? 
See, the pictures in the second half of this chapter are that God's people are going to be spread all over the world, that they're going to be victorious over the things that are opposed to God, and that they're not going to be the people like uh, around, they're not going to be like the people around them. They're going to stand out and be different and no longer bow down to the idols of the world. We've just successfully bought the Irving Building. And all the way along, it's never been about pragmatism. It's always been about a vision. It's not been about cupboards and space for a dishwasher and that sort of thing. And I wonder if God is calling us to have more faith in the vision of what his church should be like. See, Jesus is shepherding us right here in Oxford. He's spread us out over every part of the community He's given us the opportunity with this building to be a people who stand up for the things that he stands up for, to fight against the things that are opposed to God. People will give up their idols and become Christians in the Irving building. Do we believe that this vision is going to be worked out here? As I've been thinking about this, I've had to sort of really wrestle with myself. I really wanted to caveat that last statement and said and say, God willing, people will um, become Christians in the Irving building. But I've kind of been wrestling with it and I thought, actually, we should certainly not, not take it for granted, but we should renew our faith that God will bring people to know him, that he will do extraordinary things in our part of Oxford. Do we believe that God is going to use our new home to do great things? Then we want to be a part of that. The point of this vision is to inspire that faith in us. Secondly, let's also take a moment to let this vision speak to our culture more widely and address some of the problems in our society. See, to the extent that there are similarities between 8th century BC Israel and Britain today, and I think there are similarities, we should pause for a moment and let God challenge our society in the same way that he confronted theirs on that kind of society-wide level. Hopefully we're starting to get a bit of a flavour from, from Micah about the kind of problems that existed in Israel. So chapter 1, there was corruption in worship. Chapter 2, there was fraud and financial exploitation by the powerful. Chapter 3, the... Uh, the problem there was um, awful leaders, but also bloodshed, injustice, and bribery. Chapter 5, we've got this idolatry that seems to have infected the nation. And next week in chapter 6, we'll see that there was rampant greed and materialism. And so it goes on. The society was totally corrupt. So we started with that, that pyramid of how the leaders had failed and the rest of society was no better. Well, I wonder if we'd asked them back then uh, what the solution might be, what, what sort of answers we would have got. And when we see society-wide problems in Britain today, what kind of remedies do we have? See, one solution might be, um, well, it starts at the top and percolates down. So if we can fix the top, then that will sort things out. So maybe if we can get a government of a, a different persuasion or... Uh, maybe if we can get someone who's going to really galvanise the nation to lead it, maybe that will sort things out. Perhaps we could put it like this. We've, we've got a barrel with a few rotten apples in it. And uh, if we could just get rid of those rotten apples, then it would deal with our problems. 
and it's a tempting solution to believe. I think it appeals at least in part because we think if only the gospel could change a few powerful people, then we could really influence society and it would be great and we could have a really big impact. But Micah does challenge that view a little bit. The problem isn't just a few bad apples in the barrel. Actually, the systemic problems that cut across the whole of society, it wasn't just a few bad apples, there's something wrong with the barrel. And I think our own society is increasingly waking up to the fact that there are systemic wrongs um, that, that need working against. So whether it's um, Harvey Weinstein and the um, hashtag MeToo uh, campaign kind of highlighting how widespread sexual abuse has been. Or, or maybe it's some of the things that we've known about for a long time, like um, how our love of shopping depends on cheap labour in terrible conditions elsewhere in the world and the sort of global trade and so on is creating a, a, a wider gap between rich and poor. So there's some things we've just woken up to, some things we're familiar with, but there's probably loads of others that we haven't thought of either. So there's stuff that doesn't make the headlines. So I was uh, reading this week about how um, we were sort of kidding ourselves as a country that we're doing something about climate change we're putting in a few renewables and wind turbines and that. But actually, all we've done is ex export our really polluting industries to elsewhere in the world. So we've got all of these systemic problems, some more local than others. And here's the thing. What does Micah say is the solution to all of that? Here in chapter 5, what does he say the antidote is? Well, he doesn't actually say that we need to fix the structures. He does push deeper and point out that there were problems that cut across the whole of society. And he, he makes the point that to some degree we're all complicit in them. But at the end of it, what's the solution? Well, it's that God's going to send his shepherd king. At the deepest level, God's solution is to send the only person who's never been complicit in any of it. And he's going to come from this town called Bethlehem Ephrathah, and he's going to die on the cross at Easter to save us from all of our sins, both private and societal, and to turn our, our defeats into glorious victory. He's going to gather together a people who fight against the spiritual enemies of God, including the systemic wrongs. And he's going to show up the foolishness of the idols of the culture. And it's as we find ourselves shepherded by him, as we find ourselves known and forgiven, loved by Jesus, that God changes us and the world as well. So finally then, are we waiting and looking forward to this? So the vision of Micah is not giving us a, a patched up vision of Israel. It's not even giving us a sort of fixed version of Great Britain. It's showing us a completely different country, one we've not been to yet. So as we strive for the day when Jesus returns and comes to fix things forever. Well, we need to look forward to his return with our necks stretched out, scanning the horizon, waiting for his return when our shepherd king comes. And on that day, when he comes and removes all of our wickedness and sin forever, and when his greatness is truly seen to the ends of the earth. And it will be on that day when we can finally live securely and enjoy his peace forever. I'll pray as we finish.
Lord Jesus, we praise you for the kind of king that you are. That you are a shepherd king who is gentle and merciful to his people. We praise you that you're kind and you gather your people together. That you rescue us from harm around us and from our sins. And we praise you for the great promises that we get here in Micah. Promises for the future to uh, rescue us from our enemies, to um, give us victory over the things that are opposed to you. And we look for that day when, along with your people from all over the world, we're, we're gathered together around your throne. Please keep our eyes fixed on that day, looking forward to it and working for it. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.